0: Okay, so uh, I thought I would just take uh, tonight to reflect a little bit on the parable of uh, the, the ten virgins, five wise and five foolish. Um, so, basically, to summarize, there's a story or a parable of ten virgins, five who were wise and five who were foolish. And the five who were wise uh, brought extra oil they're going to meet the bridegroom, they're going to be prepared for the wedding, and five brought extra oil, and five just brought their lamps, only filled with enough oil just for the night. The bridegroom delays in his coming, and by the time he does come, those who didn't bring extra oil have run out, and so they aren't allowed into the wedding. Um... So, I wanted to uh, simply ask a couple of questions. Uh, Sorry, for some reason I've printed out the wrong sermon, but I have it here, so that's embarrassing. (laughs) It happens, right? What can you do? So the first question is, Why did the five foolish virgins not bring oil? So why did they show up without extra oil? The next question is, what is the oil? And how might we make sure that we come prepared if we are the virgins? And then last, and perhaps most importantly, when is the wedding? When is the wedding? When is it going to happen? Okay. So I'm just going to read a couple of readings from today's readings. Uh, This is from Jeremiah. And it shall be when you show this people all these words, and they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord? Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, they walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me, and not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers, for you behold, each one of you follows the dictates of his own evil heart. (laughs) Thank you. Um, uh, His own evil heart. And you have done worse than your fathers. Behold, each one of you follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. This is from Jeremiah. Um, So in this text, there's something interesting. Uh, There's a couple of of key points that I think are very interesting. Um, And same thing like with the the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 23. He talks about the Pharisees, and he says, And they say, if we have lived in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. And And so he says, well, then you witness against yourself because the prophets are here and you're killing them, right? So there's two things, or there's a couple of things that we can meditate on in these texts. The first one is that the subjects of the texts are clearly oblivious to their own problems and issues. Meaning that they don't realize just, they think that they're good. They think that they're, they're completely blind to their alienation from God. They feel that they're religious, that they serve God, and so they count themselves good in his sight. They think that they're worthy of being close to him and being called his children. Um, and it's probably because, and I don't think that they're dumb or wrong or ignorant, I think that they actually were outwardly good. Like the Pharisees were actually good religious people. They lived according to the commandments, they followed God's law. They were trying to be close to him and to honor him. Um, But the problem really is that God wants our outward goodness to be a manifestation of the beauty and purity of our hearts. If we are outwardly good and our hearts are far from God, then we, be, we may be falling into the trap of the five foolish virgins whom we read about. Um, and in the uh, earlier chapter from Matthew, um, Christ makes it abundantly clear in saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. So it can't just be that God wants us to change our behavior. It can't just be that what God wants for us is simply that we become better people, better behaved people, people who outwardly sin less. God really wants us to change from the inside out. This verse leads nicely into the next point which is that if we have focused solely and primarily on our behavior, then uh, we would effectively, like if, if the right set of circumstances came into our lives, our good behavior would probably go right out the window, right? Because if our, if our good behavior is not a reflection of our inner lives, then as Christ says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he talks of, uh, the storm, our house will be built on the sand and we will fall over. Um, and so I just wanted to talk a little bit about how this manifests in our lives in a real way. I think uh, me and my wife were laughing earlier. I, I used to think of myself as a very calm person, very chill person. I'm relaxed, like it's no big deal. Uh, and so we got a dog, and like all of my calmness uh, and my chillness, a dog threw all of that out the window in five seconds. Like, it's like, okay, I got a dog, and now I'm like freaking out, I'm getting up at one in the morning, I'm scared, she made a noise, I like, um, it's a dog. But like, all my chillness, my calmness, I'm getting anxious, I'm what are you doing, you know, I'm getting mad at the dog, I'm getting mad at my wife all of that calmness when the right circumstances came into my life, all of that outward calmness went right out the window and my true inner life was manifest. Um, and so often the problem is that we're completely delusional and, and we can't see where we really, really are. There's a beautiful quote um, from, from Thomas Merton, he was a uh, 20th century contemplative of the Catholic Church. He's widely renowned uh, for his writings on contemplative life. He says that every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. That is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist, because God does not know anything about him. And to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside of the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of love. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves, the ones we are born with and which feed the roots of sin, For most people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs, which cannot exist. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what is called a life of sin. And so, Thomas Merton really makes it clear that oftentimes we devote ourselves to an image of who we want to be. To an image that is outside of the will of God. It's the image of ourself that is outside of the will of God. And in dedicating all of our effort and all of our power and all of our money into that false self, the majority of our time and effort is so given to this false self. And that is what Thomas Merton says is really a life of sin. It's devoting ourselves to a false image that cannot exist in God's will. For, for this, from this, we can possibly conclude that one reason for us not showing up with extra oil, could we believe that for some odd reason that we already have enough oil, that we are good enough, so to speak. We're in church, we pray, we fast, we love God, we are good enough. Now I think we may think that we are good, not because we are prideful, but rather because we do not know how to look deeply at ourselves. Or rather, as is put forth by St. James in his letter, we live in a state of constant forgetfulness of who we are. St. James says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural, natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one is blessed in what he does. We can use this passage in James to now discuss the second question, namely what is the oil and how might we make sure that we come prepared? So some of the fathers uh, have said that the oil is good works, um, because they say all of these were uh, virgins, right? So they were all dedicated in their lives to the Lord. So it can't be like um, understanding or dedication, but it's good works, but um, other fathers say that it has to be a little bit more than, than just good works, right? So here St. Augustine says, but that I may tell you, by, tell you what by the Lord's inspiration I think. It is not souls of every sort, but such souls as have the Catholic faith, and it seems to have good works in the church of God. Yet even of them it is said, five are wise and five are foolish. So, sorry, so this one is about how St. Augustine's saying it can't just be about good works, right? Because some of them are wise and some of them are foolish. Um, and so I think really what all, the, all of the fathers or a lot of the fathers come to the conclusion is that the oil is actually the love of God, the self-emptying, self-giving love of God. St. Gregory the Great says, oil means the brightness of glory, The vases are our hearts in which we carry all our thoughts. The wise virgins thus have oil in their vessels since they retain in their uh, consciences all the brilliance of glory as Paul testifies. What makes our glory is the testimony of our conscience. But foolish virgins do not carry oil because they do not place their glory in their conscience because they ask it to the praise of others. So, St. Gregory says that this oil is the glorious love of God. And we need to learn how to well up within ourselves and come close to and store up in our hearts this love. Um, And so the question is, well, how do we do that? How do we well up within ourselves genuine love in order to change really from the inside out? Uh, And I mean, there's many ways. I'll just meditate on two. I think the first one is that we need to learn how to watch. Yesterday and today, it's been said so many times by the Lord, watch. This is from Matthew, but it's all over the place. Matthew chapter 25, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. If we think about what happens right before Christ is about to be crucified, the night before, he tells his disciples, stay up and watch with me, right? Stay up and watch with me. And they can't do it. They don't know how to watch. He goes away, he goes off and prays by himself and he comes back and what what does he find? That they're all asleep. He says, guys, get up, watch with me, watch. Watch. He goes away, he prays, he comes back again, they're asleep. I think we don't really, I think we really underestimate just what it is this task entails. And a lot of people meditate on this task as an exterior thing, right? Watching for sins and so on and so forth, being vigilant. And I do think that that's an important thing, but I want to talk about watchfulness as an interior journey or as an an interior work. So, a couple of things, I'm going to use a metaphor, and my metaphor is going to be of a castle guard. So, the first thing about a good guard is that that guard knows its territory. That guard knows the castle Inside and out, that guard knows every single inch of the castle, that guard knows where everything is in the castle, and that guard knows all of the grounds of the castle. And so if anything has moved or been messed up or been changed, that guard will immediately recognize it. And this is how we should be with our own hearts. Thomas Merton says, the world of men has forgotten the joys of silence, the peace of solitude, which is necessary to some extent for the fullness of human living, man cannot be happy for long unless he is in contact with the springs of spiritual life which are hidden in the depths of his own soul. If man is exiled constantly from his home, locked out of his spiritual solitude, he ceases to be a true person. I know that we don't have we're not monks and we don't have time to sit in solitude forever and we really are busy, I I know that. But I think that this practice, and this is, I mean, secular studies are coming out about this like crazy. This practice of sitting for a short period of time in silence and in solitude and really learning what's going on within your own house, knowing the grounds of your own soul, knowing what moves you and what doesn't, knowing what's inside of you, Sitting with that is a really, really important thing. And if we can do it for just five or ten minutes every day, it makes a huge difference. And the science, the science is with us there. Next, the good guard knows what he is looking for. The good guard knows what he is looking for. In other translations of watch, it's, all, it's often translated, watch for him. Watch for him. In other words, watch for God. But also, watch for anything that isn't God. If you know what you're looking for, you know what you're not looking for. Avanilis of the desert says, The arrows of the enemy cannot touch one who loves quietness, but he who moves about in a crowd will often be wounded. And so if we know what we're looking for, if we know the difference between that which is God's in our own hearts, and that which comes from our own selfish desires or from the motivations of the world or the desires of the world. We will be a much better guard. And the next thing, and this might be one of the most hard things, a good guard never leaves his post. A good guard never leaves his post. If you sit alone and try this even for five minutes, you're going to notice that your mind wanders like crazy and that you go off thinking a million different things. And one of the things that's really important to learn is observing rather than reacting to our thoughts. Observing rather than reacting to our thoughts. Oftentimes, we want to go after every single thought that we have, we think that, there's, that these thoughts are really important and that they, I really need to investigate them and I really need to find out what's going on with these thoughts rather than just sitting on my post and waiting and observing. When I see a shadow, I run from my post. When I see a desire, when I see a cool thing, I leave my post, I leave my guard, I leave the castle, and I go after whatever thing just came into my mind or in front of me at the time. Amma Sincletica says, There are many who live in the mountains and behave as if they were in town and they are wasting their time. It is possible to be a solitary in one's mind while living in a crowd and it is possible for one who is a solitary to live in a crowd of his own thoughts. Uh, The next thing that we can do, so that was watchfulness, uh, the next thing that we can do is potentially change the way that we see the world. In Romans, Paul says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we should change the way that we think. Um, I've been reading a book called For the Life of the World by Father Alexander Schmemann. And he outlines a, a problem. And when I was doing my studies in religious studies, I did a couple classes in religious studies, I learned about this same thing. Uh, One of the approaches to the theory of religion is that religions break things down into sacred things versus profane things, or natural or spiritual things versus material things, or supernatural things versus natural things. And Father Alexander Schmemann says, such were for centuries the only accepted and the only understandable molds and categories of religious thought and experience. But he says that, In the Bible, this actually isn't the way that we should see the world. We shouldn't be splitting up the world. The Bible doesn't split up the world into spiritual things and material things, supernatural things and natural things. He says, rather, in the Bible, the world of which man partakes is given to him by God, and it is given as communion with God. The world is not something material and limited to material functions, thus, different from and opposed to the specifically spiritual functions by which man is related to God. All that exists is God's gift to man. And it all exists to make God known to man, to make man's life communion with God. It is divine love made food, made life for man. I think it's really important that we realize that all of the avenues by which we can encounter God and fill up our vessel, are endless. It isn't just that we; the only way to experience God is through coming to church and through prayer, although those are amazing and wonderful things and those fill up our heart with a sense of God's presence and God's love. But God has given us this whole world as an opportunity to encounter Him, to participate in His love, We are called as Orthodox Christians to live what Alexander Schmemann calls a eucharistic or sacramental way of life in which everything is transformed into an encounter with God, in which everything is transformed in an opportunity to participate in and communicate with God. Therefore, there is only one problem in which all of my existence, my peace and my happiness depend. It is to discover myself in discovering God. If I find him, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him, says Thomas Merton. The last thing is, when is the wedding? So I'll just go quickly. Um, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Of course we know that there is a final judgment. And Christ himself said, No one knows, not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour of the final judgment. And so in some sense, the answer is no one knows when the wedding is. No one knows when the wedding is going to start. No one knows when the day of the Lord is going to come upon us. All we know is that there will be a day of the Lord, a reckoning, a judgment. And now, while this answer is obviously and simply true, there is another dimension to the question for those participating in the mysteries of the Church. In Father Alexander Schmemann's book, he invites Orthodox Christians to enter into that sacramental way of life in which the world is transformed into a timeless and Eucharistic presence and sacramental presence of God. This concept that the whole world becomes an encounter with God breathes new life into the words of St. Peter. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Once we route out all the delusions which keep us from seeing ourselves and the world in this way, from seeing God in everything, we will realize, as Peter has said, that the end of all things is now. That God's judgment, in some sense, is always before us, is a timeless reality. And so when we encounter one who is in need, and we have no oil, God who identifies himself with every person says, I do not know you, for you have not helped me. When we encounter one who we hate, and we have no oil to dispel the temptation, God who identifies himself with every person says, I do not know you, for you have hated me. When we heroically sacrifice ourselves for those far from our own homes but can't spare five minutes to listen with compassion to our closest family who are in need, God who identifies himself with every person says, I do not know you for you have valued the approval of others over the approval of God. When we encounter ourselves with vitriol and harsh negativity, God who identifies himself with every person says, I do not know you for you have not valued my presence in your heart. But let's not lose hope because there is a final judgment. And luckily for us, since the mystical encounter is not the final judgment, as we have mentioned above, we still have time to fill up the oil of love so that by the grace of God we may try as much as possible to show up prepared for every encounter with God. And also, just as the day of judgment is also there, the judgment of God is altogether present so also is his infinite love and his infinite mercy always present in our lives. Glory be to God. Amen.